welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yeffitt, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Well, I am thrilled today to have Thad McElroy on. He's a publishing expert, futurist, and author who's been looking at the big picture in the publishing industry for many years. And I'm excited to talk to him about where publishing has been, where it's going. And before we get into all that, though, Thad, can you just give me a little bit about your background, the things that uh, have shaped uh, who you are today? Oh, sure, Glenn. Where to start? I started in publishing right you know, at the beginning of my career, actually in book selling uh, initially, and then went into trade book publishing. I became, from there, I worked for a while as a journalist. Then when the industry became digitized in the mid-80s, I get really with the initially with the you know Apple Macintosh, laser writer, page maker, that sort of thing. It intrigued me to see an industry that I had known as a very analog industry rapidly digitizing. And so I moved towards that and began consulting to publishers uh, in the late 80s. And since then have been a consultant to a broad range of publishing types over the years and magazines, newspapers ad agencies, designers, all that. But increasingly, you know, my first love was has always been and continues to be books. So most of my work in the last, let's say, decade has been directed towards book publishing specifically. Right. You know, I came into publishing in 2001. And almost from the beginning, I observed that everyone had a lot of trepidation about where technology was going, uh, what the impact would have. And, you know, one thing now that I've been in this industry for, you know, 15 plus years. One of the interesting things to me is the things that didn't happen. You know, one, <laughs> let's just start with what everyone was talking about at one point, which was what happened to the music industry in which a huge amount of the money of selling music just sort of drained out of the industry. And am I right? That really didn't happen in publishing. Yeah, that's an interesting point you raise. I spend a fair amount of time in trying to look at comparators between different parts of the, let's call them the entertainment industry. So from the music side to the book side, then the other one you have to bring into the equation is film and increasingly television or, you know, TV on demand in the Netflix type kind of conception. Right. And you, you, you then try and see, you know, what are the differing forces and how do they compare in what way are they similar and which, which way is not. I mean, I guess with the, you know, the, I think what you're referring to, clarify if, if I'm not getting this wrong, I mean, the, the amount of piracy in the music industry was so enormous and still is you know, very significant where book piracy has never been that big a problem, though many publishers fret about it publicly. I just, there's you know, very little data to support right. uh, that kind of concern. And you know, we, we'd probably have a sort of hour discussion as to what it is that's unique to books that makes them less appealing to pirates. Well, part of it, you know, if you just look at the big picture and you look at the revenue from selling music, which dropped, right, just off the top of my head, from something like $25 billion to $14 billion, and now is going up again because of streaming. But for but a huge amount of the total revenue of the everyone, who the people who sold music, that revenue dropped off a cliff. And people were waiting for that to happen in book publishing. And maybe part of the reason is you can't disassemble a book the way you can disassemble an album. And, you know, people were paying, I guess, 
10 or 15 or more for a CD where they really only wanted, you know, three of the song and in book. And so once I can get those songs for 99 cents, it created the industry. I'm sure there's a million other factors, but, you know, we were waiting for that to happen in books and it never happened. I was just wondering if you had some thoughts about the differences and the similarities between our industry. Yeah, sure. Um, when you say dissembling, you know, I would say, yeah, okay, you know, that's one sort of aspect of it. If we try and do a sort you know, corollary, okay, you can take an album and, you know, break it into its songs and, you know, those each stand alone or can stand alone, you know, separate from the album experience where with a book, yeah, we have no uh, tradition of, you know, extracting tra chapters and, you know, sort of trying to transact those separately. But I don't see that as the kind of primary way of, of seeing those two things side by side. What I think is the largest issue is the, let's call it fidelity of the digital format. With music, you know, music that's digitized, you know, is perfect, right? I mean, you can create a digital replica, particularly if you're talking about an analog version of that same music, you know, it's, it's, it's better than, but, you know, there, there's no degradation uh, inherent in the digitization of music. Whereas the publishers have, in my view, you know, really screwed it up in that the ebook formats remain uh, significantly, you know, substandard against the print book format. And, you know, while there are some advantages in ebooks, which are, you know, pretty easy to, to delineate, there are still really significant um, aesthetic and usability disadvantages that I think, you know, have been a big part of the slowing of the uptake of ebooks, uh, pricing being another huge one, but but just the usability is is a major factor. Oh, that's that's very interesting. So, is it the nature of ebooks, or is it the way publishers have implemented ebooks? The latter. Not that it was easy, and not that there haven't been a lot of smart people working really hard to create you know high quality ebook formats, but uh, I guess a combination of things that. The current ebook standard, EPUB 3, is robust, but most publishers don't use it. They use an older version, 2.0, 2.1, and that version was less robust. You had to, if you use sort of 100% of the features of that file format, you could do a pretty good job, but most publishers didn't bother. Most publishers, you know, have a, I was going to say a contempt for the format, but they, it's sort of the nature of the way this industry is set up that the ebooks don't have the same kind of champions within a publishing company that the print books do. So publishers, particularly now that it's coming a spiral, you know, the ebooks aren't selling enough as a percentage of the total sales. So we're not going to invest extra money in creating better versions of the ebooks. And then, you know, the vendors like Amazon don't support all of the features in the ebook and blah, blah, blah. So the the end up the losers are the consumers who just don't get as high quality an experience as they could get if the publishers put more effort into exploiting the inherent features of the format. I think I follow that for like for the let's say for a beautifully illustrated book that you could into an ebook. But let's just talk about a novel. Is a novel underdeveloped as an ebook? Those are the best. That's where the greatest success has been is in fiction. One of the things I did years ago was actually the product manager for an automated book typesetting system. And the first approach we took, oh, well, fiction's so simple, we can just automate that typesetting. But interestingly, you know, 
even within fiction, there are often interesting sort of page variants. There are sometimes little illustrations in the text and interesting. You'll see books where, you know, the author, like Kurt Vonnegut, was very famous for putting, you know, little sketches into his book. So those have to be rendered very carefully within an ebook. But you're right, you know, the average book of fiction, particularly genre fiction, tends to be straight text, nothing, you know, nothing fancy at all. And yes, those are perfectly optimized for the whole ebook ecosystem and experience. But as soon as you get into, you know, nonfiction, and it doesn't have to be, you know, fancy, beautiful illustrated books or, you know, clever kids' books or anything like that. It's, it's amazing how the average book of nonfiction quickly deconstructs in the ebook format in unsettling kinds of ways that, again, if the publishers put the effort of matching the index against the pages and building certain of the visual elements with more gusto, we'd have a much better experience. But I'm constantly disappointed when I get a nonfiction ebook on my ebook reader or on my computer. Interesting. And, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I, I'm interested in thinking about that for our own publishing house. We actually, for our full color books and for our illustrated books, we actually spend a lot of money working with top designers to develop the ebook. But for our simple, you know, not, not, we don't do a lot of novels, but for our simple, just print books where there's, you know, no, no illustrations, we do, we do them very straightforwardly. So maybe that's something for us to look at. So that's a, that's a great, that's a great idea for me. Yeah. Thank you. I think you should talk, you know, every publisher should be in touch with the the people who are reading their books and, you know, do more focus groups. And I think, you know, you know, I've visited your website. I've looked at some of your publication. I think you're doing a wonderful job. A lot of publishers aren't, you know, making the kind of efforts that you're making. And, but even where you do, you know, try hard, you know, I think you'd be shocked by some of the responses you would get from the average um, person who's, you know, bought one of your books. You know, another thing that everyone was worried about, maybe we're still worried about it, uh, I'd be interested in what your thoughts on this, is that, you know, it's, I think you've talked about this, like where Netflix is, you know, where Reed Hastings is talking about, we're not just competing with other television, we're competing with every use of the reader's time. And if you look at the proliferation of all these new digital entertainments that people can access, you think there's a lot less time for reading. But when you look at it, it looks like, especially when you factor in all the self-publishers and all those books being released and you add it all up, it looks like the number of books being read is at least flat, if not growing, or at least the number of books bought. Nobody knows how much is being read. First of all, is that observation correct? And if so, how would you explain that? Sure. Good, quick question, really. It's It's kind of heart of darkness question. Let's go with the easy part of that which is, you know, how, how is the book market, you know, you, if it's so threatened, why isn't it collapsing? And it's not, as you're correctly observing, both the unit sales, uh, dollar sales, surveys of readership suggest that for the most part, uh, it's flat, which is given that so many of us were, you know, at one point catastrophists, it's, you know, it's great to see that it hasn't been catastrophic at all. It's hanging in there. Right. And it's a big market. You know, book publishing is a $35 billion industry in the United States. So, you know, in that sense, there's cause for optimism. Then, so then moving on from the optimism, we would note that a market that's flat in a growing entertainment industry 
is the market that's losing. So, you know, Netflix is growing leaps and bounds. Music is growing once again. Publishing is not growing and has not seen growth in um, about two decades. And so, you know, it's, it's at a very, I think, fragile point of view. The next economic crisis that we face could have a very significant negative impact on book publishing because it is very uh, recession uh, sensitive uh, in ways that certain other parts of the entertainment industry are not as sensitive. And you, okay, then going back to what you started with there with Reed Hastings and Netflix, that part's you know completely intriguing, right? Yeah. Twenty, you know, we try and dissect it twenty-four hours in a day. How many? You know, we work this, we commute that. There are these time use studies that you know are very robust in terms of you know the accuracy with which they try and track how people use those the time and what they consume in the leisure time and. You know, it breaks down, of course, that, you know, let's say the average person has four hours of time that they can devote to various you know, entertainment consumption opportunities or plus digitization, you know, texting with friends, you know, other digitally enabled activities. It ends up adding up to, you know, far more than four hours because of multitasking. And that's you know, proving to be people are becoming more and more adept at multitasking. But the, you know, the thing that's least um, adaptable for multitasking is reading. Right. It just, you know, you can't do much. You can <laughs> listen right. to music, right? right. But not much else. And so, the, you know, the, in that sense, you know, I, Netflix is going to do better than Simon & Schuster in this particular battle. Right. I mean, there's something about uh, reading, at least in terms of immersive reading, that it's an experience that while it competes with everything else, nothing really quite replaces it. It's its its own unique thing and has been for a very long time. There's much truth in that. But, you know, I've, I feel that, as others have commented, you know, Netflix is so interesting. I guess it really it goes back to HBO. The Sopranos would be sort of the starting point of that, where um, the intellectual sophistication of the content that started to come through the TV channel, I think rivals the intellectual sophistication of some of the best creative writing, whether fiction or, or really creative nonfiction, and its ability to engage the brain and fully capture the you know, attention and imagination of the viewer is incredibly thought-provoking and absorbing. And that, to me, is you know, probably the biggest threat to reading at this particular point. And you know, Netflix is an exemplar, although <laughs> I must say a lot of what stuff they do is so awful. <laughs> I just don't know who the audience is for that. <laughs> but but you, I mean, uh, but I have to agree with your big point here, which is that, I mean, we are in this golden age of thoughtful television. I don't know if you watch Westworld, but that just launched up again. Yep. And we've actually done, we have a, a series called Smart Pop where we do uh, intellectual or semi-intellectual essays on different pop culture topics. We've done probably 20 books about different TV shows. And so we've, we've tried to put our book hook into the growth of great TV, um, even as that's happening. That's good. But I, tot yeah. I totally agree with that. Wonderful. I mean, and, and you know, obviously I probably wouldn't be in this business if I wasn't sort of an optimist. but I do. I have observed the staying power of books in a way that has shocked me. And, I, and I'm thinking more now on the nonfiction side, which is really our bailiwick. I think with the proliferation of digital information, of free information, 
that anyone can put up, there's more and more desire for curated information. And when publishers talk about themselves as curators, I always kind of roll my eyes, you know, that like that's, you know, that's, you know, that's ancient history, you know, maybe at one time, but now anyone can publish anything. But in a way, that's part of the issue. And I know, like you look at the New York Times, they did a billion dollars in digital revenue uh, and subscriptions in 2017. Because I think in an age where anyone can post anything, there is a desire to have something that's authoritative. And I find myself, even though there's an infinite amount of information on the web, I will want to get a book about a specific topic that I know is written by an expert. because so I know they put a lot of time and energy and the book was edited. And so to me, that I think that's maintaining the book. But maybe I'm too optimistic. What do you think that? No, I think that bingo on that one. Um, and it's, it's an increasing trend. I think, you know, anyone who's, you know, semi-literate or above wants to, you know, live through the internet experience uh, for, you know, more than a year or two, you know, you, you pretty quickly divine that there are some real problems in terms of, you know, the quality, the consistency of the quality. Even if you are selective, you know, towards, say, New York Times, for example, the quality there, you know, another Gotham, you know, another recipe article, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> <Right. I> think, <laughs> another travel article and so on. Those have always been there, but somehow they're more in your face via that medium. Um, yes, I think, you know, as you were asking that or making that comment, uh, I thought one of the things I've noted in the history of publishing, speaking broadly, um, you know, including multiple like magazines, newspapers, and, you know, visual media and so on. Quality has always risen to the top, ultimately, you know, and, and quality is always a, a, a significant definable part of the market, however you define quality. You're almost a niche publisher by focusing on quality because a lot of publishers don't. And certainly, you know, that's what's happening with the self-publishers and where they are not competitive in the nonfiction sphere because they don't have the kind of resources that you can bring to bear the kind of professionalism that that's part of your organization. And so consumers are going to spot that and they're going to react to that accordingly. So it's, it's good to see. Another thing I was thinking of is, as you were saying, talking, it's great time to be a small publisher because you've got what to say, kind of flexibility, the ability to, you know, react quickly to a trend, the ability to adjust a marketing program around a book that's, you know, being encountering a different kind of marketplace than you might have anticipated. I think a, a good small press, it's never been a better time to be a good small publisher. I agree with that. And even as, you know, the big publishers are starting to scale back or focus more on the A-list books, it creates a lot of opportunities for a smart, independent publisher. And, you know, I've just seen it in my business, how successful we can be because of the openings that the big publishers create for us. Yeah. So uh, I've definitely seen that. Um, well, going back to what you said about the self-publishers, I do think that even, you know, a lot of the self-publishers are producing great stuff, but because so much of it isn't very good, it's very hard for the self-publisher to signal, yes, this is a quality product, unless mm -hmm. that person really has achieved some name recognition. And that is still an advantage to, you know, even a independent publisher over, over a self-publisher. Well, you know, I spend a lot of time with um, self-publishers. I consult you know, increasingly in my consulting 
work, uh, you know, often uh, involves self-publishers. I have a couple of projects on now with some um, very ambitious self-publishers who are, you know, who've called upon me to help out. I know a lot of self-published authors of fiction and nonfiction. I've self-published myself in, in a number of nonfiction books, no fiction. I definitely immerse myself in, in that side of the industry. And it's, it's, it's intriguing because the dynamics of self-publishing, arguably, you know, it's, it's a different industry than what we call book publishing. It's the self-publishing industry. And it has a whole different set of, of uh, forces that, that uh, come to bear on it. And particularly in the way that um, quality is signaled, as you mentioned, and perceived by potential readers, the way that readers are reached and influenced uh, is something you know uh, fascinating in in the self-publishing uh, sphere. And it it, it, it is um, you know, think about something like Goodreads, you know, and how influential that is within the self-publishing community. Right. And that's something very different than the influence of the New York Times. So what advice do you give to self-publishers who really want to make business out of it and be successful? Despite my, you know, sort of enthusiasm, it's brutal. You know, I mean, you know right. how brutal it is to be a, a you know, publishing business, uh, to be a single author trying to, you know, build an audience. It's, it's you know, it's grotesquely brutal. You have to be <laughs> <laughs> very, very brave. You know, I don't think you want to be masochistic because, you know, that, that'll look after itself. You have to be, you know, realize that, the commitment you have to make, uh, you know, just throw any kind of thought about money out, out the window. You have to just be focused on finding a readership. You know, is there a readership for your book? And if so, how do you reach them? And you're going to have to reach them one at a time at the beginning. And that's, you know, painful and hugely time consuming um, and not a business model. But over time, if you're willing to make that kind of investment and and do have you know a book that is of quality that you know readers read and do you know get delighted by, you have a chance. But you know if your book is anything less than exceptional, you're going to have you know a near impossible task. Right, and you know it's it's interesting. I've read a lot of uh, of the writings of self of self publish self publishing experts. Because I think they have, you know, fascinating things to say about marketing that that we can learn from. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed there is, I think you kind of alluded to it, there's kind of a conflict between smart publishing for a self-published novelist and smart publishing for a uh, independent publisher that's trying to get books in stores. You know, so a independent publisher or self-publisher might try to bring out a book every four months and, you know, write them quick, get them out. And that's kind of the advice that I hear a lot. And it seems to make sense. Yeah. You're building your audience. Each new book sells the ones before it. But for a, with somebody who wants to lay down in a bookstore, wants Barnes & Noble to get excited, it's a much, it's a, it has to be a much different process. So there, that conflict is really there. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you. You point to a couple of intriguing things. I mean, the first thing I think of, but as you're talking about this, I was at a romance novelist conference a few years ago speaking and got to meet you know some of the folks who are building big audiences in the romance uh, field, and uh, you know smart, uh, committed artists, you know working hard to you know, communicate with, you know, try and bring um, you know delight to their readership, and trying to be as professional as possible. They went to this expensive conference to share you know tips and tricks, and I met someone you know one one of the novelists one evening, and I said. And we were talking away and talking about this issue of, you know, how many books you need to, to build your audience. You need more and more product, let's say. 
And it's like, how many books did you uh, publish in the last 10 years? Well, I did three last year. <laughs> what do you right. mean? You, you wrote right. three novels last year. And I said, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm really starting to build a readership. And so you're saying, okay, so this is something different. This is not the publishing we grew up with. This is a different form of entertainment. Yeah, it uses words and, you know, it. It's the process resembles what we call publishing, but it's actually something kind of different. Um, and it's hard to, at this point, still define that exactly. Is it an industry that has to do, you know, solely with genre fiction and solely with series? That's, you know, as you say, you know, that the advice is to, you know, get them out there quickly and, you know, build a, a you know, a, a committed uh, group of readers because you're giving them enough new stuff you know per year when you think well that's a really limited business model so i've noticed in a lot of your interviews and writing you're uh, a little critical of the big publishers so sum it up for me what do they get wrong (sighs) what do they get wrong i don't know that i would say they get wrong you know it's per se i mean i think they tend to be they're they're arrogant, of course, you know, which is the nature of the incumbent. And that's never a good thing, right? So that isolates them and causes them to make certain kinds of business decisions that are not necessarily, you know, if, if they could get off the pedestal and, and get down in the weeds a bit more often, uh, they would probably make certain different kinds of business decisions. The, the one that, you know, is let's What's the most vexing one, and, and one I just tweeted on it uh, um, just before this call, the figures came out for 2017 ebook sales today, down 10% in 2017. Of course, that's you know just measuring the traditional publishers with that particular uh, release because uh, you know the self-publishers is a whole other way of trying to measure their output. But so for the traditional publishers, the ebook sales down 10%. That's ridiculous, right? <laughs> Which mean they're down ten <laughs> percent. You know, this is a fabulous industry. There are millions of readers. How could you possibly have allowed your, you know, your your income to in this particular area to drop by ten percent in twelve months? And it's like well, the answer is pricing, as we know, right? It's just that prices are ludicrously high in terms of the the quality being delivered, and in terms of the. Uh, you know, the mechanics of the market and how people respond to digital product versus analog product and what pricing means on an opportunistic basis. And, you know, there are studies that, you know, make it absolutely certain that if they drop their prices, they would pick up enough profitable volume to more than offset the decrease in revenue that would result from those prices. However, they have a complex problem, which is that they need to continue to support the retail ecosystem. As I see it, you know, Armageddon comes when Barnes & Noble, you know, finally throws in the towel. It's hard to know when that's going to happen. Lots of complicated things there. But, you know, it it seems inevitable uh, at some point that there is no Barnes & Noble. Uh, Certainly not as we know it today. The superstores are proving to be an uneconomic format. The company continues to contract. When you look at the percentage of the overall book publishing business that's represented by retail, it's very modest. But it's essential, you know, it's still essential for trade publishers to have that opportunity to get into the retail channel in terms of discoverability, credibility, uh, uh, reviewers taking, paying attention to books and, and building a readership and so on. So until that part of it collapses on itself, 
it's very hard to be a large publisher. And even I'm sure for you, uh, you know, in, in, with your publishing company, you've got these very mixed you know, signals that you get around trying to support the retail ecosystem. Right. Well, you know, at our size, that's kind of above my pay grade. I don't think Barnes & Noble is depending on, a, on us <laughs> to keep them afloat. One of the things that keeps the book public, the big publishers, let's say the, you know, the top five, uh, what keeps them alive, is a significant factor that's sort of underreported is that they monopolize the review space, the book review space, and increasingly monopolize it. I, I, I study, you know, the, New York, the bestseller list, but more often what I st- also what I study um, and what I think is more telling is the book prizes. And the book prizes go far disproportionately um, to the large, you know, to the books from the big five. And I keep looking at them and I'm just saying, you know, is it possible that there was no nonfiction book last year from a publisher that wasn't the big five that should be on this list of nominees? How can that possibly be? But you see that the attention that those people can still garner with their books, they have a stranglehold because, you know, if you're using the New York Times as an example, but, you know, the LA Times book review, whatever, it doesn't have to be New York Times, they don't dare not review the books that those publishers signal as being important. So the question is, how do you break through that noise and get reviewers, serious, you know, reviewers who have an audience of, of serious readers to look at the books, the, the important books that you do? That's a great question. And, you know, we're in the nonfiction space. So I think I think it's very different in fiction, which is much more review driven. You know, we've had 14 New York Times bestsellers, many books selling 100,000 plus copies, one selling a couple million copies, never got a New York Times review. And (laughs) I mean, I think it would be great. And we go after reviews and we get some, you know, the Wall Street Journal has been good to us for whatever reasons. So we do get some coverage, but I don't think most nonfiction books are selling on reviews. I don't think it's that big a factor and even less prizes. We've won some prizes. Doesn't always sell very many books. So, Hmm. you know, now we haven't won a Booker Prize or, you know, any of the maybe that, but even those, if you look look up on BookScan, the Booker Prize winner, a lot of them don't sell that many copies. And nonfiction publishing is inherently a niche business. You know, there's Fire and Fury and the Comey book. You know, there's always a few examples that are go beyond it. But there's maybe half a million people that's your target market for a book. And if you get to, you know, 10% of them, you've got a nicely successful book. And if it blows yep. out beyond that, then you've got a really big book. So, you know, we've had a lot of very successful books that, you know, don't get the attention of the review space. or And I don't think it matters that much. And, and especially in the niche business. You know, there are people with a 50,000-person email list that sells more books for us than when we get the same author on the Today Show. It's just, mm. you know, it's, a, it's kind of a niche business. So these gen- generic reviews are not that powerful, you know, in, in our experience, which isn't to say we wouldn't love to get more of them and we don't try. But, you know, it, right. it, it doesn't make a big difference. You know, we get publishers that reviews, of course. doesn't sell a lot of books. It doesn't make a big mm. difference. You know, we use the quotes, you know, we try to leverage it, but it's not even a big factor in getting laid out. So it's it's kind of a different world. Those reviewers, they have a role, but not that big a role in the big picture in terms of movie books. Good, good. That's interesting. Just to have a little fun here, Thad, let's say, uh, you know, you some investors came to you and said, you know, we like we like the way you think. 
we want to fund you and have you start up an independent publisher. You know, you said it's a great time for independent publishers. So that, let's start out bad publishing or McElroy Press. And how would you, <laughs> how, how would you focus your effort? What you were, you had some money and you wanted to start a publishing business. Would you say no, thank you? Or would you say, okay, here's how I would do it? That's fun. That is a fun question. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the, the most recently, actually in the last week, I've been talking to a couple of friends about starting a new publishing company. And here's how I described it. I said, all the books will be printed letterpress so that they're beautifully produced, not as art objects, but just beautifully printed books so that when someone picks them up, they go, you know, this is a lovely object. I really look forward to reading it. So they'll be expensive, uh, you know, instead of being 25, they're going to be 50, but they won't sell anyway, so they might as well look good. <laughs> that was my... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to attract an investor for that proposition. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to get a lot of funding with that idea. We started out, we kind of strayed away from it, we pivoted, but we started out as a science fiction press and doing a lot of reprints. I've noticed that in the science fiction space, you know, for some of those classic books or some of the big name books, you know, there is money to be made selling, you know, $50, $75 limited signed mm -hmm. editions of some of the yep. big name books. And that's, of course, even a separate category of rights that, so, I mean, you might not be crazy with that idea. You just have to have Stephen King and some of the, and you may be able to get those rights because, you know, that's not a right that's typically exploited by the big houses. And especially if the author wants it, which generally for ego, they would love to have that. I think I might want to put some money behind this idea. It'd be a good idea. <laughs> we'll talk about it. The other one I would, either that I considered, I've given a lot of thought to, but I've never brought to fruition. It comes back to the earlier part of the conversation, ebook formats, right? If, if you could, as a publisher, if you mastered how to do the format, beautifully, consistently beautifully maximized all of the things that it can do well versus print books. You know, it's, there's certain things that digital can do better. There's lots of things that print does better and, you know, that digital can't touch. So it's, it's not one or the other, but to work with eBooks, you know, to their maximum capacity and try and build a press that just does consistently uh, kind of, you know, we're too, we, with a print book, we want to delight the, 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 the customer, the reader. You know, we, we want when they pick it up, you want them to say, wow, you know, this is this looks great. Um, and I see publishers in competing with digital are, are wonderfully, you know, focusing much more attention on production values in the last five years or so, which I had been preaching and was pleased to be, you know, sort of see that happen but with ebooks we haven't done that most publishers are not trying to delight their readers they they have this you know view that um you know it's a secondary format well what if it was a primary format what if we you know really started thinking digital first in a in a profound way what kind of publisher would that look like so that's that's the other side of it for me that's interesting i mean we definitely don't think of digital as a secondary format you know it's co-primary it's co-equal to the mm -hmm. print side. And, you know, it's an important part of our business. But I wonder if a lot of the publishers are, have been burnt on the apps. If you remember, oh, remember yeah. every publisher was going to get into apps. Yep. Yeah. And some of those apps were gorgeous. Yep. And they were amazing and nobody bought them. Yep. And so I wonder if the reason maybe no one's thinking of spending a fortune on 
doing amazing ebooks is, you know, one, there's all those technological limitations you talked about, including the one set by Amazon. But also it's the fact that, you know, we've been down this road before and it didn't work out that well. Yeah, that's, you have a good point you're raising. I, you know, one of the books I wrote, one of the market studies was, you know, really looking at the market opportunity for book publishers in the app space at the point when we were all thinking there was an opportunity. And I interviewed some of the publishers that were, you know, putting the big money in into that, like Touch Press in the UK and gosh, uh, Taschen in Germany and so on. So there were, you know, there was people that, as you say, they spent a lot of money and didn't get it back. The problem with the apps was audiences aggregate to one source or to the you know the top source, the blockbusters. So if you look at what's happening now on in, in the app space, is that roughly ninety percent of the time is spent with ten apps, and you know that was always problematic, but it's only gone more and more concentrated. But I don't think people should see that as a reason not to do more things with eBooks. Right, and actually, you know, if we, you know, you look at the book business. Most of the revenue is from a small number of books as well. Uh, you know, most books aren't very successful. That's if you look from a publisher-centric point of view. If you look at an industry-wide point of view, the long tail is real. You know, in the sense. Oh, no question. You know, right? No question. If if there was only one publisher, they would be getting you know eighty-five percent of their revenue from anything but the top sellers. Then let's go back to what you were saying earlier, which I found very interesting about. Because I hadn't thought of this before, and, and I know it's not part of my awareness, but you were saying that, you know, perhaps the big publishers overpriced ebooks as a way of supporting the retail channels, Barnes & Noble in particular. And you'd have to argue that, that if that's the case, there is a real business logic of doing that, isn't it? I mean, what's the world look like when, let's just say, if Barnes & Noble is gone and it's really Amazon plus a bunch of independents and you know, a little bit at Sam's Club and what have you. Yep. Yeah, it, it, it looks way different, doesn't it? I mean, they, you, you're sort of pointing to two things there. One, the, the particular analysis that we'd bring to bear on what happens when the, the retail ecosystem collapses and you know, its impact go far beyond the sales, the, the, strictly the sales dollars that that portion of the industry produces. It has a disproportionately large impact beyond the sales that it produces but the you're, the other thing you're pointing to there, which is a really a, an issue that's uh, you know underexplored and very controversial, is Amazon's dominance, right? We, I mean, it's not like no one talks about it. People, you know, think about it, talk about it. It gets written about endlessly you know, in books and many other areas how dominant Amazon is. But you know, when it comes to book publishing, you know, their dominance of the retail channel is so extreme. That it's it's you know it's it's terrifying because you know it it undermines the entire industry because you know we cannot be dependent on a single outlet for success or failure and for many of the publishing clients I work with now if Amazon if they can't make it work with Amazon they can't make that book work the whole thing falls apart that's not a good business right and you know for independent publisher like. Myself, where you know, like I said, it's above my pay grades. Where you got the industry configuration issues, it's just too big for us. But so for us, Amazon and the you know the other retailers are the ecosystem in which we have to survive. So if there's only you know if Amazon is increasingly dominant, then that's the ecosystem in which I have I can't fight Amazon, and I don't want to try. I have to be 
better than my competitors in flourishing in the Amazon ecosystem. Yep, you do. But the long term, but the long term challenge is, I don't know if Amazon has a plan to disintermediate the publishers, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't mind doing it. And if Barnes and Noble is gone, then the argument for that a publisher presents to an author is a lot weaker. That's well put. Yeah, that's really well put. I mean, now are you referring to Amazon's um, own publishing program and how it's taking an ever-increasing percentage of the total book sales on Amazon? I mean, that plus their, you know, their facilitation of self-publishing. So because I'm in the nonfiction space and I work with a lot of authors with a great platform, they are always thinking about self-publishing. So I've got to make the case to them that, well, not always, but they're often thinking about it. I have to make the case to them that they are better off with, with us than going on their own. Yep. And part of that case, a big part of that is retail distribution. Yes. You know, another part of it is marketing, which I think a lot of publishers, it's not their strength. But for us, it is a strength. So it's something I talk about a lot. But, you know, that's, it, is it enough of a strength to win in that market where all of a sudden no one cares about retail distribution anymore and everyone and 90% of sales are online? Right. That's going to be a much tougher conversation. Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, yes, it'll be a tougher conversation. A couple things there, too. The retail market is not complex, right? It, it it's you know, that that you have access to it, and a self-published author does not is really you know the single factor. I mean, in terms of being successful within the retail market, that's a debugged problem. You know, it's very easy to understand what the opportunities are and what the limitations are of the retail market. What's not a debugged problem is how to be, as you put it a couple you know a minute ago, a, a, a better uh, a more successful publisher on Amazon than your, you know, approximate competitor who's doing books similar to yours and, you know, similar topic range, similar quality. How do you outperform them on Amazon? That's a far more challenging problem than how do you get books in, you know, how do you outcompete them in, in Barnes and Noble? So on the other hand, it doesn't, you know, from the out, because it's so complex, it doesn't necessarily appear. People don't understand the level of complexity involved the level of complexity involved in being an excellent digital publisher. Um, so you're going to lose some authors who say, oh, I can do it myself. They'll probably come back after one book you know, in, in many cases. For others, it, you know, it will be the way they'd rather work, and that's fine. We, the, the one thing we don't have a shortage of is you know, raw material. There's always going to be other authors that you can you know, fill the space with. So that's not going to be a problematic from a business model perspective. Now, that's right. It's a, it's a question of whether it becomes a tipping point. Yeah. You know, we have a number of self-published authors who, you know, we took in. They'd had they'd sold five figures of their book mm -hmm. and we've turned that into six figures. So we know from experience that we can add a lot of value to a successful self-publisher. But part of that equation is retail distribution. And I do think there could be a, a flip, uh, you know, tipping point where if enough people decide Hey, I don't care about retail. That becomes industry dynamic. And then we're seeing publishers really either having to buy the product through advances or, you know, some other means that, um, of adding value that, you know, was not where we focused, which is more distribution and marketing. Mm, interesting. You know this better than I do. On the one hand, I think that, you know, as, as publishers, 
the, the print format, I think we've now studied it enough and we know that, you know, in for, for so many kinds of books, print is the superior output medium than digital. And there's no reason to think that will stop happening with a great many kinds of books. Uh, so even if the Barnes and no, you know, the retail channel as we know it now uh, does a radical shift, I don't think it disappears. So you're, you know, the, 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 the value that you bring in terms of mastering that channel or maintaining that channel, again, I think that'll be completely, I don't think that will ever become accessible to the average self-publisher. So you're going to continue to have a competitive advantage there. But I also would continue to argue that, you know, it's the rare self-published author who really grokks how the levers and knobs and levers of, of self-publishing promotion and distribution success, you know, really works. And that's something that you clearly do understand. And that's, you know, that's a, a sustainable competitive advantage. Now, that's interesting. I think you do have a point. And for us, it's always the focus on marketing. Yep. Because that's the toughest part of the business in a way. Oh, yeah. For us, the, the break is always, it's not been digital versus print. It's been online versus bookstore. Mm, yeah. Because that's where I think there's really different skill set. Yep. But let me shift the topic because I wanted to ask you about something else. I know you've done a lot of research into book publishing startups. Yep. And, you know, I've looked pretty casually at a lot of the startups coming in and out of the space. And my observation, which might be naive, so you might want to correct it, but my observation is they've had very little impact. Uh, very, the startups haven't changed much of anything. So am I right or am I wrong about that? You're right. Completely right. You know, the study that I published last year on startups, which looked at, you know, over 800 of them, one of the you know, data points I had was you know, how much money had been invested in these companies. And, you know, what, it was under a billion dollars, you know, which, which is nothing, you know, in 800 companies, it was well under a billion dollars. I can't remember the number, but, you know, it was like chump change in terms of, you know, the kind of money that flows around the startup community. So they've not been successful in attracting capital which is, you know, uh, it's chicken and egg, of course, to some extent, but, you know, it's because, okay, you would say, oh, well, the investors have not appreciated the opportunity that's there. No, actually, the investors have looked at it very closely and realized there isn't an enormous opportunity there. So then you start to say, well, you know, does, does book publishing need to be reinvented? You know, it's like, no, actually, it works just fine. You know, I mean, there are shifts. That, you know, <laughs> right. But it's, it's, it's you know, we, we've figured out how to publish books and get them to the readers who are interested. The reinvention has to be going beyond the book. You know, I think, you know, I could make a sort of philosophical, if we call it that, argument that Netflix is the best book publisher in the in the universe, you know, but they happen to do their books as as moving images. So but it's that kind of rethinking that, you know, it need to be if you're thinking about the future of publishing, you need to have that kind of lateral rethinking. It's not about, you know, an incremental change to the uh, business model and the business, the outputs that we have today. And most of the startups that have come into this are are very un, you know they're uh, self centered and unimaginative at the same time and really aren't bringing uh, <laughs> much in the way of new thinking to to what's uh, what's going on here. Now, what about what about subscriptions? Do you see a future in that? Absolutely, yeah. That's that seems to me the historic inevitability, as they say. Yeah, how can it not be that? Uh, Kevin Kelly is the best exemplar of it, and I, I think I quote him in my blog at one point. But you know, the way Kevin puts it, 
people may not know him, but you know, he's he's a well known, let's say future futurist, future analyst, the author for many, many decades of you know, who who's had some very profound, you know, views of, of where things are going broadly as, you know, societally, economically, but he's very interested. Didn't he come up with a long tail as an idea? No, that was Chris Anderson. Oh, that was Chris Anderson. So Kevin, anyway, says, the way he describes it, you start to think, yeah, it's got to be, right? Because like with music, as we're seeing with, you know, Spotify and the transformation of that industry and with Netflix, it's like, I don't need to own these things. Why would I own them anymore? Why would I own you know, a CD, why would I own a digital file that'll own a CD? Why would I own a DVD? Why would I own the digital file of that particular film? They still try and do extras and this and that. So, you know, there's certain issues there. But broadly speaking, with the average piece of entertainment uh, product, if I can use that word. Yeah, but, you know, but there are, I mean, that just to jump in on this, you know, there are industry dynamics. So you can't just look at what the, in my opinion, you can't just look at what the customer wants. <laughs> the publishers control the, the books, and unless they're willing to accommodate, you know, the subscriptions, nobody can do it without losing a fortune trying to do it. So I disagree how, with how that. How do we get there from here? Yeah, yeah, help me understand that. How do we get there from here? Ain't easy. I mean, when you say the publishers control it, indeed they do, and you know they're going to go down. I mean, they're kicking and screaming is going to be the least of the noise. It's going to be you know much louder than that. And, and there is a huge logistical problem in terms of the legal contracts. Yeah, that's a huge logistical problem that they, we ran into with subscriptions 1.0 <clears throat> a few years ago when we had, you know, those startups like Oyster that came and went and where Oyster was quite well funded. But when you start up saying, you know, we can't, we can, it doesn't matter what the customers want. Well, it does, right? And you look at two forces right now in the short term, of course, you know, is a Kindle Unlimited on the Amazon side and scribed on the, another side that's starting to have some success in book subscriptions. And alternately in the nonfiction space, albeit a, a, a niche, but still very interesting is what O'Reilly's done over the years with Safari and the tremendous success they've had. So it, it but going back to it, using the Kindle Unlimited is the most intriguing thing to me because you know, it's become a thing for a self-published author not to go into Kindle Unlimited is a mistake in most cases, certainly for fiction, for nonfiction, that's a different thing. But if you're a fiction author, not to publish your book through Kindle Unlimited is a mistake because you're missing a significant amount of income. That's a subscription-based, you know, ebook service. And what it does from, you know, you're not allowed to publish with anyone else, say I'm Apple, you know, Google, uh, Barnes & Noble, et cetera, uh, at the, when you're in Kindle Unlimited. So they monopolize that part of the market and they create a, a whole sector of the reading market that's serviced by subscriptions. And so, you know, if you're a sub-publisher, forgetting your company for a sec, you know, and you say, well, I, I don't want to be in that monopolist channel, and I don't want to miss, you know, being able to market through Apple, for example, uh, which, you know, is potentially a robust channel, although they've screwed that up about every way they can. Then you start to say, well, okay, so there's going to publishers who are going to remain outside that channel. Eventually, they're going to be dragged into it. They're going to be, you know, their authors are going to say, please, I'll, re you know, I'll sign a new contract. I want to be in those channels. That's what I see happening over the next decade. That's interesting. Well, you know, if it does happen, I think Amazon has the best shot at it because they're the only ones who can 
really put the pressure on the big publishers to cooperate because the, the front list titles have to be in it or it doesn't really make sense. It's just an add-on. Well, no, but there, I mean, there, there's, you know, significant numbers of millions of subscribers um, to these services. But when you say, you know, Amazon can put the pressure on the publishers, it's not going to be that. It's going to be the carrot, not the stick. That, that's what Amazon's doing is they're making a really, you know, uh, very appealing carrot. And that's ultimately going to be it. There's going to be this viable channel that, yeah, by all means, skip it. You know, you don't have to bring your author to this channel because people are finding that, you know, they don't need to have those books, and which is increasingly the case, right? The blockbusters are selling fewer and fewer. This is part of the changing dynamic because people are finding there is an alternative to everything but fire and fury, right? There wasn't, you know, the stuff at the very top of the heap, you know, has a unique position that can't be assailed. But, uh, you know, a bestseller 10 times down, you know, 10 spots down the list can be substituted for, as I'm sure you see. No, that's a good point. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Yeah, very interesting. Well, as my final question, I, you know, as, as a futurist in this industry, I'd love to get your big picture thoughts on where things are going. What, what, what's going to be different three years from now? I'm fixated on the economy. It's been what we're you know a decade um, past the last you know, major downturn. I know that it's partly I've got this kind of emotional predisposition to disaster uh, because of the way I grew <laughs> up, which is a whole separate story. Uh, you know, so but I you know so I'm, the, I'm the voice saying you know here at this fun party we're having with this incredibly strong economy, watch out, you know things are about to go go down, and. You know, when's that going to be? You know, no fool can you know claim to have that answer. But I think any fool can say with you know with uh, pretty much certainty that it's going to take another turn. And the effects of that, you know, when you when you um, analyze or, or research the history of, of recessions and depressions on these industries, they, they cause a significant reconfiguration. Most recently, we saw it actually in the printing industry, uh, which was beginning to suffer before the recession of 2007, uh, eight, and was you know, really just, you know, just blasted by that. So they were already in, in, problem, in a problematic situation, and that then came in and, and just, you know, the, the winds were too <laughs> forceful at that point. So right, right. book publishing, you know, it's precarious. And, you know, how I, I say to my, you know, to my friends and my book publishing uh, clients, build a war chest because the war is coming. And if, you know, if you're running lean and mean, that's good. And pocket some of those profits and think about ways that when things start to go southward, how you know, plan that business model now, because that's the biggest challenge in the immediate future. You know, beyond that, you just become a far better magician of these very complex, you know, things that you can begin to harness to, or can increasingly harness to get the word out to that one more reader that is going to be your friend when, you know, in bad times as well as good. Okay, well, that, well thank you for that. that. That's helpful. You know, I'll share one, one thing on that, which may or may not be a, it's from a selfish point of view. I've observed that, you know, in the last downturn, 2008, 2009, was very good for us. And I bet it is for some other independent publishers, um, you know, because publishing is not like a lot of other business. In a way, we're investors. 
you know, we're, we're almost like we're picking stocks. Mm -hmm. And if the stocks are undervalued, then it's a great time to buy. Yep. And so one of the things that I see is that when the industry in general goes down, there are some tremendous opportunities to invest in authors and manuscripts that might not be available when the industry is flush. So for a scrappy independent publisher like us, sometimes there's a bright side to when things are looking down a bit. That makes a lot of sense and is a great perspective. And again, is you know because you're scrappy, because you're small, you've got you know you can move that ship in those difficult times, which big publishers are just not you know it's well established they're not able to move the ship with anything like the kind of speed that you can do. And so good, you know, look to that as opportunity. People are going to you know it's it's reading will drop like the, the sales will drop uh, during the next uh, you know for for the industry as a whole. With a smart, smaller publisher, yeah, a wonderful opportunity. Now, for the record, I'm for continued growth and upturn, <laughs> so I'm not rooting for it, but uh, we'll be prepared, I, I hope, for whatever comes. All right, well, Thad, this was great, and I really appreciate your time. I really found this a fascinating perspective on the industry. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Glenn. All right, have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to the Building Books Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Fork Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you.